0: In the midst of the wild and woolly presidential campaign of 2016, you may not have noticed that there was a dark horse candidate contending for the highest office in our land whose name was Zoltan Istvan. I love the name Zoltan. It sounds like a DC or Marvel comic book hero. You almost expect him to have a big lightning bolt on his chest. Well, Zoltan was a representative, actually the nominee, of what is known as the Transhumanist Party, a collection of individuals whose main purpose is to help human beings, and I quote, to become godlike and overcome death. Not a small platform, I might add, to become godlike and overcome death. And to draw attention to their particular cause, Zoltan spent month after month after month driving all around these United States in a giant coffin-shaped RV that he dubbed the Immortality Bus. Now, the transhumanist platform holds that by leveraging the power of science and technology, we can overcome death in our lifetime which is an amazing vision, if you think about it, because according to the most recent studies, the death rate across this world is holding pretty steady at about 100%. (laughs) So this is a bold vision. And before we just write these folks off as crackpots, let me just hasten to add that no less a respected authority than the Google company is on this particular task as well. For the past five years, Google has been investing significant sums in what is known as the California Life Company, Calico for short. And Calico's main purpose is to figure out a way to stop the aging process and to grant human beings indefinite longevity. And I want you to think about the promise of this particular vision and really take it seriously for a moment. Just picture the possibilities. You would have centuries to improve your golf game. You, really w- you, you would be able to catch up on every single episode of every single series that you've ever missed. You would have lots of time to save up and plan for that really romantic 650th wedding anniversary. This will be amazing if these folks can achieve what it is they're setting out to do. It needs to be said, however, that not just everybody agrees that simply extending our physical lives is going to really be what makes the most sense. A goal uh, goal set by Max Tegmark, who is a very respected MIT professor, uh, he suggests that what we ought to be doing really is pursuing what Tegmark calls Life 3.0. He's written a, a book by this title, it just came out recently. Uh, and in this book, Tegmark argues that, that human beings um, have already been through Life 1.0. This was the time when, when biological life... Uh, came into being and cohered and began to multiply in its various species and forms. Life 2.0 is that period where human beings really came into their own, hit their stride, began to develop culture, uh, amassed the capacity to create all kinds of wonderful technologies. But everything, says Tegmark, has been moving towards life 3.0. And life 3.0 is where we take the human body and we merge it with artificial intelligence, creating unimaginable kinds of power and potential. Tegmark writes, and I quote, by merging man and machine, humanity can become master of its own destiny, finally fully free from its evolutionary shackles master of our own destinies, finally free of all our evolutionary shackles. That is a vision. It's not a particularly new vision. Actually, it's kind of fascinating if you think about it, how human beings have been on this quest For a very, very long time to be masters of the universe, to be freed from the shackles of death. In fact, the oldest story in the world, as far as I know, is about a certain snake who tells a pair of naked people, just do this, just invest with me, and you shall be as God, master of the universe, and you shall surely not die. You'll be freed of the shackles of evolutionary reality you'll be able to overcome death. Now people have been on this chase ever since that time, wealthy Egyptians as you know mummified themselves in pursuit of this particular gold, Spanish kings spent vast fortunes trying to find the fountain of youth, rich young rulers in a sense in every single generation have been pursuing the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how do I buy a seat on the immortality bus? This has been a very long journey and pursuit for human beings. When I was uh, 17 years old, I I remember going to a a fundraiser for one of my mother's organizations at a very beautiful estate in Bedford, New York, uh, outside of New York City. Uh, it was being uh, held at the home uh, and property of a man by the name of Charles Revson. Revson is perhaps more familiarly known to you as the, um, the heir and operator of the Revlon Cosmetics Company. And uh, Rev- Revson is famous for one particular remark that's now quoted in advertising circles the world over. He said, in our factory we make lipstick, in our advertising we sell hope. We sell hope, hope for overcoming all of the blemishes and the limitations and the unromanticness of our life. We sell hope. And as I was walking around his magnificent estate that particular day, and it struck me, this particular uh, strategy was working pretty well for Mr. Revson. I mean, this is an amazing property and, and home that he had there. But as I was interacting with a number of the guests at this fundraiser, it also occurred to me it wasn't working quite so well for everybody else. And I I remember uh, particularly this very striking redhead I got into a conversation with. Her name was Tina Louise. You may know her better as Ginger from Gilligan's Island. And uh, Ms. Louise was at that time in her early 40s, but already the cruel ravages of time were beginning to take effect upon her in a way that no amount of Mr. Revson's uh, cosmetics were going to be sufficient to really overcome. Uh, Ms. Louise struck me as a very, very nice person, but a somewhat sad person. And I thought to myself, she needs a better hope. She needs a better hope. We all, I think, need a better hope than what Zoltan Istian and Google and Tegmark and Revlon are all selling to us. And uh, and that is why I think today is such an incredibly important day for us as we think about our lives and as we set the course for our own journeys through this world afresh. On Easter morning, long ago, a group of grieving women went, as you know, to a garden tomb. They went there to pay their final respects to their spiritual leader, to to the man in whom they had actually invested a great deal of their hope. They believed he actually might even be the long-awaited Messiah, the one who truly was the master of, of all things. But then they had watched him uh, suffer an unanticipated, at least from their point of view, an unanticipated and extremely cruel death at the hands of local authorities. And they'd seen him go the way of all flesh and watched him get buried here in this particular place. To their astonishment, when they got there on that Easter morning, however, They discovered that the the armed guards that had been posted in that place by Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, to ensure that there was absolutely no tampering whatsoever with this gravesite, those guards were gone. And the huge stone that required many people to actually even dislodge had amazingly been rolled away from the mouth of this tomb. And when they looked inside, they saw the grave clothes of their master. They were lying there like the discarded chrysalis of a butterfly that had gone. In fact, in one of the accounts of this story, th- there's this sense you get that you, they found the head wrappings and then separated a little ways away, they found all of the wrapped wrapped. Uh, the mummification, the, the linen that had wrapped around the body of Jesus, now just depressed, as if somehow he had dematerialized and then rematerialized on the other side of it. It was, it was a stunning sight. It, it made, actually Peter and John believe that he had been resurrected. And then to the women 's absolute amazement, an even greater light broke upon them as they suddenly heard his voice. And turning, Mary found herself face-to-face with Jesus, very much alive. And with love in his eyes, he spoke to her and he encouraged her to go and tell the other disciples that he had come back just as he said he would. And he instructed her to tell them to prepare to meet with him in a short while. Luke's gospel tells us that later that day, and I quote, while they were still talking about this, while the disciples now were in a whole confab about the news that Mary had brought to them, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. The disciples were startled and frightened, the scriptures say, because they thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise up in your minds? Look at my hands, look at my feet, it is I myself. You're not imagining this. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And we, when he had said this, the Bible says, he showed them his hands and his feet. They could see the marks of the nails in his hands and his feet. And the text actually goes on and says he asked them for a piece of fish. They were having brunch, Easter brunch, and he asked for some, some fish and he ate it right there in front of them to show just how physical was the reality of who he was he was no hallucination then he opened their minds the scriptures say so that he they could understand the meaning of the scriptures and he told them this is what is written this is what was always written the Messiah will suffer and will rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations to all peoples beginning here at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things you have not only encountered this yourself you are now to go forward and carry out the mission as witnesses of the new reality that I am bringing into being. Well the light of that particular encounter they had that day with the risen Jesus was absolutely transforming to this group of individuals. It was a total life changer, game changer for them. Because before Easter, the disciples thought that Jesus might have the ability to forgive sins but after Easter they were absolutely sure of it. They were completely convinced that Jesus was indeed God in the flesh with all of the capacity of God and as they began to realize that his proclamation that they, were, they had a clean start, that their sins were absolutely covered and paid for, as they began to live in the light of that amazing grace, their sense of guilt and anxiety began to melt away and they emerged from that experience and went out into the world as the most gracious, generous community of people that had ever walked this planet. Totally unlike the other religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, for example, they they were not a group of people that that others feared being in the presence of because they thought they would be judged by them by their pinch faced form of righteousness but much rather this became a community of such graciousness and generosity that the scriptures tell us that they enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily the folks that were streaming in wanting to be part of this amazing community of forgiveness and grace and love. Before Easter, the, the disciples, no doubt, were somewhat inclined to put the teachings of Jesus into practice. They were probably a bit like some of us are at times. They had a certain kind of buffet belief system. They, they liked some of what Jesus taught. I think, I'll, I think I'll take that belief. That sounds good. But ooh, that forgiving my enemies, I, I, I don't have a taste for that. I'll, I'll come over here. And take this instead, they were selective in their practice of the teachings of Jesus before Easter. But after Easter, the disciples dedicated themselves to living in light of all that Jesus had commanded them. They figured that he being God, he knew how life was meant to be lived and they dedicated themselves, I'm sure they were imperfect in the living out of it as we are imperfect, but they gave themselves with profound passion to seeking to live in the way they had seen Jesus live and as he had taught them because they believed that in so doing they would experience this abundant life that Jesus had told them about and would be able to extend greater flourishing to the people of this earth. Before Easter, the original band of disciples dreamt that maybe, possibly, there was a life beyond the grave, but after Easter, they became so certain of this, so absolutely confident that there was life beyond this life that we see, that they were willing to be tortured to death rather than deny that Jesus was Lord, they had no fear in death anymore. Easter transformed this ordinary group of people into an extraordinary band of witnesses to what it meant to live in the light of the reality that God was trustworthy and powerful and present with us. And within three centuries, the light of hope that filled the hearts of those first followers would spread out and transform the darkness of the Roman Empire like the sun coming up, like some kind of blessed revolution. And the number of people who were dedicated to living in Christ's light would grow from just that tiny little circle to some 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost in, in in say 30 or 60 AD to 33 million people by by AD 350, 33 million people. And though it was never perfect, the Christian movement would nonetheless establish incredible beachheads for human progress. They they would establish a vision for the dignity of all persons. They they would extend works of unprecedented compassion across tribal and familial lines like never before. They would make legal and political systems more just than they had been. They would advance the welfare, especially of women and of children. They would encourage the growth of scientific and medical inquiry. They would lay the groundwork for democracy and free markets. They would become known as a people who offered eternal assurance even to the dying. They would stay behind in plague towns when the Families had had completely left behind their loved ones who were sick and the Christians would care for them and offer them the hope of a life beyond this mortal frame. They were an extraordinary, an extraordinary revolution of light and hope in a world that desperately needed both. Brothers and sisters, these are your people. This is the movement you belong to. This is our inheritance. This is our mission in our time. Though I know sometimes we struggle to receive it, we struggle to take in that Easter is for you and for me as well, that the power, the light, and the hope that those first believers took into their lives we can take into our lives in a transforming way as well. I think of a story that author Sky Jathani describes. Uh, it, t- it has to do with a trip that he and his father took uh, some years ago to the streets of, of New Delhi in India. And uh, Jathani describes uh, walking out with his dad in the streets and if you've been in that part of the world or, or other parts of the developing world you know that beggars are sort of a fact of life in these places and and in this particular uh, situation they found themselves approached by multiple people but one particularly memorable beggar that uh, chased after them was this very little boy. He was very skinny, he was uh, frankly emaciated, he was mostly naked except for a pair of black, uh, baggy, ragged blue shorts that he was wearing. Yet his legs were disfigured, in fact there's a good probability that his parents broke his legs when he was little, in order that he could beg more, more winsomely. And, and so he was following after them as they walked. He was actually uh, hobbling after them, waddling on these calloused knees of his. One rupee, he cried. One rupee, please, he said. And each time he spoke these words, he would, he would uh, bow his head and... and, and Put his fingers to his mouth, trying to suggest that that's what he needed just to eat. One rupee, please! And he kept waddling after them as they walked along the street. And finally, Sky Jathani's father turned around and looked at the boy full in the face. And, and he said, How about I give you five rupees today? And and rather than rejoicing at these words, the boy's face clouded. Uh, his submissive countenance suddenly turned to a look of defiance as he retracted his hand and he actually sneered at us because it was obvious he assumed that, that my father was having fun at his expense, a laugh at his expense, because there was no way that he was ever going to give to the boy five rupees. And so mumbling curses under his breath, the, the little boy turned and began to shuffle away. At which point my father, says Jathani reached into his pocket, and there was the sound of jingling coins, and the boy heard the sound of the coins and turned back and looked over his shoulder, and his jaw dropped as he saw my father standing there holding in his outstretched hand a five-rupee coin. And my dad walked forward to the little boy, and he took the coin out of his hand, and he put it right into the little boy's hand. And the little boy just said nothing. He just... He just stared, stunned, at the coin. We passed him and crossed the street, says Jathani, And a moment later, the boy's shouting resumed, except this time the boy was yelling, Thank you! Oh, thank you, sir! Oh, bless you, sir! And he was coming after us again now, this time not to ask for more money, but simply to touch the feet of my father. In gratitude for what he'd been given. I wonder sometimes if this is not how God sees us. I know that God knows that we are all in need of help, we are all ones who who need help. We all need help in different ways, I suppose. I know many of us, we're longing for the seat on the immortality bus. We'd all like an upgrade to Life 3.0 from whatever version we're operating on right now. Every one of us is looking for some kind of cosmetic to cover our various blemishes, but we're often out there settling for one-rupee solutions. We're out there settling for solutions that are just too little. Think about it. What if Google's successful? What if if they, they make it possible for us to live 650 years? What good is that going to be for my wife if she's still living with this character? You know? I mean, how helpful is it really going to be to simply extend our days? What real hope is it to have our lives merged with technological and, and, and scientific capacity, all of it in the world, when what we long for most really is not knowledge, it's not, it's not greater control. What we long for at the end of the day is an abiding love. Love a rapturous love that makes the moments worthwhile? Why settle for cosmetics that simply make us look better on the outside when Jesus offers us grace itself, a a real power for forgiveness and for flourishing and forever life that just changes our fundamental condition altogether? Why settle for anything but what Jesus is offering us freely. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, Jesus said that day, that Easter day to the disciples. I'm going to give you power, the best kind of power. You will receive power from on high, Jesus said, the power for new life. The funny thing about that gift, the funny thing, I guess, about any gift, if you think about it, is that for the gift to take effect, you actually must receive it. It's not enough to simply know about it. It's not enough to simply hear about it. You must actually receive it. One of my mentors was a man named Dallas Willard, a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, an amazing follower of Jesus Christ, and he illustrates this basic principle by telling the story of growing up in a part of rural Missouri where the only power available came in the form of lightning strikes, and those were not that frequent and not that harnessable. In my senior year of high school, he writes, the Rural Electrification Administration extended its lines into the area where we lived. And those lines, those power lines, came by our farm, and a very different way of living presented itself, suddenly. Our relationships to really fundamental aspects of our life, uh, daylight and dark, for example, or or hot and cold, or clean and dirty, or work and leisure, or preparing food and serving it. All of these different uh, dimensions of life could suddenly be vastly transformed, changed, for the better. But we still, in order to experience the transformation, we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements. The power that could make our lives far better was right there near where we were and by making relatively simple arrangements, we could utilize it. But strangely, a bunch of people didn't. They did not, I quote, enter the kingdom of electricity even though it was right there they didn't want to change they weren't sure they could trust it some could not afford it (laughs) or so they thought and it's like that it's like that with the kingdom of heaven it's like that with the kingdom of light that, that Jesus invites us into. He so, is so ready to give us the forgiveness and the flourishing and the forever life that we've been seeking. He is so ready to help us. We just need to make some simple arrangements to receive it. To enter into it, we need to turn away from, the Bible word for that is repent of, The false securities, the thin solutions, the the minor power supplies that we have been relying on. We need to arrange our lives in such a way that we are tapping into the true power source on a daily, continual basis. In fact, I just would go as far as to say that one of God's power lines runs right through the place where you're sitting right now and through lots of great churches around this region. So the question is, are you going to arrange your life so as to be able to receive it? Are you going to let go of the false hopes and turn to the great hope? Are you going to connect yourself regularly with the one who has what you need and with a community of others that are committed to this same light? And it's a very important question. Because Christ was born, he lived, he died, he rose again to give us this gift. And if ever there was a time since the first century where people needed real light in the darkness, I want to suggest to you that that time is now. In the eighth installment of the Star Wars saga, a character by the name of Kylo Ren, who is the son of Han Solo and of Princess Leia, has gradually let his life be taken over by what is known as the Dark Side of the Force. It's not a good life. He's been sucked into the shadows, as it were. And he has just come back from a significant uh, battle against the rebellion that's opposing the the dark side. And he has struck what he believes is a decisive, maybe even a fatal blow to the forces of the rebellion that oppose the work of uh, Kylo Ren's dark master, the dark Sith Lord Snoke, spelled almost like snake, no coincidence. No coincidence, George Lucas knew what he was doing here. And donned in a black robe and wearing a helmet much like his grandfather, Darth Vader, Wren exults in his victory over the rebels in front of Snoke. But Snoke knows something more, and he chastises the young man. He says, you're just a child in a mask. And this just wilts Kylo Ren for a moment. And he says, I gave everything I had to you. I gave everything to the dark side and then Snoke spits out the decisive fact aimed to crush the boy's excessive optimism. Snoke says Skywalker lives. The seed of the Jedi lives and as long as he does, hope exists. That is true. It does. And in a much more cosmic and amazing sense than Hollywood can even dream of it. The one that the gospel writer Luke points to the one who rose from the grave and walks the skies, he lives. He lives. And because Jesus lives, real hope for you and me and this planet also lives to challenge the darkness, to bring forth a new kingdom of light. And I don't know about you, but hearing this, believing this, receiving this, makes me want to get off every other kind of bus I've been wasting my time traveling on and join the revolution. And the thought that Christ's revolution is surely going to win out in the end against the darkness, and that you and I can be part of it starting today, well, this makes me just want to sing hallelujah.